1: Hello everybody, it's New Books Network Anthropology and welcome to our latest podcast. I'm your host Yadon Li, a PhD student in anthropology at Tulane University. Family kinship and marriage are classic themes in anthropology. From Louis Henry Morgan to Bronislaw Malinowski, from David Schneider to Janet Carsten, anthropologists have worked untiringly to explore the typology function and changing forms of marriage and kinship system over time. and Among all the themes, polygamous marriage has always attracted anthropologists' attention. Uh, Basically, anthropologists want to know how polygamy works, how the participants of this kind of marriage system think about it and practice it. And the new book we will discuss today is the latest anthropological exploration of polygamous marriage based on ethnographic fieldwork in a Mormon fundamentalist polygamous community. Through a fascinating case study, this book tells us something essential about being human. And Today, I'm very excited to talk with the author of this book, William Jinkobiak. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, Professor Jinkobiak.
0: Yes, I'm glad to be here.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's also my pleasure to have this interview. And this new book, elicits Monogamy, Inside a Fundamentalist Mormon Community is published by Columbia University Press in 2023. Professor Jinkoviak is a professor in the anthropology department of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He also serves as executive director of the Forum for Asian Studies. His research focuses on urban Chinese society, urban Mongols, Mormon fundamentalist, polygamy, and love. He is the author of several great books, including Sex, that's an hierarchy in a Chinese city, an anthropological account. And he's also the editor of several edited volumes on marriage, love, and China. Uh, so basically, uh, I have to say, I know Professor Jinkowiak for a pretty long time because his works on Chinese uh, urban society for and romantic love are very influential and almost inesca- inescapable for any social science student in China. Um, but given the audiences of our platform are from different disciplines and from different backgrounds. They may not be very familiar to your work. So, Professor Jinkovic, could you please introduce yourself to our audience about your research interests and what brought you to marriage and love studies?
0: The uh, fine, fine, fine question to begin. The, I've always been curious, as almost anyone in anthropology or social, anyone in social science or history, why people do what they do. Uh, now, the question really is, is why do you pick the topics you pick? Um, you know, I'm not, though I've studied hierarchy, I'm not obsessed with hierarchy. Some people, generally people with lower, uh, coming from lower social classes, study stratification because they're trying to figure out where they belong in the hierarchy of things. Why people who are very successful seldom study stratification because they're confident in their position but that's just a psychological dimension that's never discussed on that. But why study love and sexuality? Because uh, like the popular folk song says, I, I was a failure in love. So therefore, if it's something's important to you personally, you tend to want to understand why and you tend to want to see if other people got it right. And so I think that's probably why I looked at that I wanted to understand how other cultures, how other individuals within those cultures dealt with these certain issues on that. But also there was another larger issue, and that has to do with with a philosophy. I thought focusing on the emotionality, the existential reflections, gave us better insight into a population than just focusing on the institution's. That is the position in society, their status and roles, classic British social anthropology uh, and classic Malinowski functionalism in a way. I think all that's neat. I think everybody looks at that. I think it's important to do that. But what interests me was really the probing of the liminality, how people confronted competing values. How they integrated these values between the self and and wanting to merge into something bigger than the self.
1: Yeah, super. Yeah, I think it's super convincing and it makes totally sense because it's a combination of you know personal interest and academic interest. And let's talk about the topic of this book. Um, polygamy, I think, is a very interesting phenomena in human society. But specifically I want to know what prompted you to do this specific project about polygamy and the tendency toward monogamy in a fundamentalist Mormon community.
0: Well, after I completed two and a half years research in the 80s on China and finally wrote up the, the Chinese material, I was exhausted on China and generally what people do, is you recycle a lot of your information until the creative juices come back, your curiosity comes back. So I decided to take a break from China in the 90s, and I was looking for a new project. And I got introduced to the polygamous community, which I thought a lot of work had been done. But then I discovered nobody had written anything on it at all. They were an outlaw community, it was a felony in Utah, but not in Arizona or Montana or Mexico, but these were all underground communities. They had a history of their relatives being arrested and put in prison, the kids being taken away. They were very suspicious and rightly so of outsiders. Um, um, and uh, so no one had really any access. And when I discovered that, I thought, oh, that might be very interesting. And then there was a question that came out of my graduate program, which was dealing with evolutionary behavior. And Don Simons wrote a terrific theoretical book on human sexuality. He was a physical anthropologist at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, And he argued that humans were prone to sexual variety, particularly men. And, and I was curious, that was just my curious question, you know, were the Mormon men more content in a family where they had lots of variety, and plus, it was okay to marry someone else. So in a sense, that they would have this open arena of of possibilities. And were they more content than say, people in a monogamous marriage? That was you know, not really thought out. It, it just was a derivative of, of graduate school. But also in graduate school, I argued with Simons. I agreed with his hypothesis. It just made more sense if you just look at prostitutes and why are there so many catering to men and why do women do it so differently and yada, yada. Uh, but it just struck me men seem to be also attached to one woman and that became then the question was why if we were hardwired so to speak for variety why stay with a one woman for 10 15 years um and 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 men do and 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 men get very troubled if a wife they're really involved with leaves them that it didn't seem that evolutionary theory could explain that so that was part of all of it i just was How did people actually live in this family system? And it's interesting. I got invited in by, and of course, classic example of marginal people. These were not the the, the elite of the community who were the most suspicious, had the most to lose. And they were just wonderful people. And the people who talked most vividly about life in the community were the women. There's an old saw in anthropology that says women can only talk to women and men can talk to men. But that's simply not true. Women who've done research in patriarchal societies find the men talk to them. Uh, they don't look at them as an insider. They look at them kind of as a confident outsider. And the same thing goes in this case. And what the women constantly were talking about was the lack of love. <laughs> I found it very easy to talk to women but not to men, which really, again, surprised me. And of course, I I had some male friends and I was really rooting uh, for their lifestyle. I thought this would be great if this could work. And so when I found one failure after another, I thought, well, no, bad exception, outlier, outlier. And I remember to this day with friends that i have been with two and a half years and I was sitting in the back of the car and I gave them my conclusion. And I says, do you know anybody in this community that has a happy marriage? And they, and the husband and wife both looked at me and says, no one has a happy marriage in this community.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. It's like a myth just broke, basically. <laughs> so, um... yeah,
0: also a myth to them and a myth to others. I had given this talk later to UCLA, Okay. and, and a lot of the academic men were really upset. And they they said, well, isn't it true that high status men get lots of women, and isn't that just really the push for the thing? And I looked at them and I said, every time I give this cause talk, the people who are most upset with the findings are academic professors.
1: Yeah, definitely, because in anthropology we see so many classic works, such as you know from Margaret Mead from and um, you know Z about the so-called primitive societies. The- it basically, they depict a picture about very harmonious marriage and basically the imagined marriage. So I can understand why they, are, why they were upset, basically. So let's talk about this academic part. So as we know, marriage and kinship are very important uh, topics in our discipline. So what so from your perspective, why is understanding marriage system, especially monogamy and uh, polygamy, is crucial for anthropologists and broader social sciences?
0: Well, this is the great question of our times. It's been, but it, we're not the first, you know, in the 19th century, there were experimental sexual communes from the Oneida to the Shakers uh, and, 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 and people wondering, is monogamous, is it one man, one woman, is that, is that the fundamental unit? Tolstoy has in one of his characters in one of his novelettes has one man, one woman, that's the goal but for how long okay. and what what I, and i think what you find here is people are experimenting they're wondering how can i get more fulfilled is there fulfillment with just staying with one person uh, we have now if you will the whole thing of polyamore where 50 percent of of people under 30 are claiming they're more are open to polyamore now it's attitudinal they're not actually practicing it But they're saying it'd be open. I have a lot of love to give. I don't want to be constricted. Does that work? Interesting questions. A lot of polyamorists. Yes, it does. You're really constraining yourself. Other people think, well, maybe we should have a full marriage system. The polygamists would say, talking idealistically, that polygamy is superior because it promotes a plural love where everyone is supportive of one another takes care of one another uh, is a bit, you form great friendships uh it's a, a unit of reproduction where you can you can embrace your nurturing side and you have a lot of supportive allies in the system and it becomes it's very attractive uh, uh, speech it's very attractive to listen to and you go ah I wonder if my life would be better in that setting. So you have all these doubts. People are just really wondering what works and what doesn't, and so people are are ex- constantly experimenting. So I think it's in that bubble, but that bubble's been always there. polygamy is really good for reproduce. If a man wants to produce lots of offspring, polygamy is terrific. You can you can have you can you can have twenty children within ten years. Uh, and 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 multiple grandchildren as well. So as a reproductive unit, here's the real question though: Are we more than just reproductive units? You say that was one, you know. And what I found, of course, by listening to what people were complaining about, the answer is no. They they took great pride in having a number of children. They didn't look at it as a burden. They took great pride. Women did but they also wanted something more. So what we have here, isn't it interesting? The monogamous want something more. The polygamous want something more. The only people I can figure out who don't want something more, the polyamore, they're just happy as well. They found Nirvana and they can't understand why the rest of us don't join them. <laughs>
1: yeah, we will have our ideological, you know, thoughts on our marriage system and you know we have some belief about them. And I think basically in this book you try to test and you try to, you know, disprove some stereotypical understanding of specific marriage system. It's very interesting. And here I just want to put a more specific question. So what is the major or the most important question you think you want to answer through this ethnography?
0: Well, that comes down to how, how do you make sense of your data? How do you frame it in a way that's interesting? So remember my my crude wonderment coming out of graduate school and critiquing Don Simons and the evolutionary thing about were men happy about sexual variety? That gradually got transformed as I listened to people. And originally, I was going to title the book The Lonely World of Polygamous Men uh, and 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 the reason for that is I looked at how men suffered trying to balance all the different competing parties and how they took very seriously, this was not bad faith, they took very seriously the commitment to their religious belief. And they were acutely aware, though, they didn't like to admit it, of their shortcomings, their inability to quite live up to that. Uh, such as finding a favorite wife uh, which they all denied except for people who weren't the favorite wife they always pointed it out which is fascinating in a way so they wanted that they, they accepted and embraced the cosmological understanding and they really wanted to adhere to it but then there was the pragmatic and i would say the emotional underlying realities so out of that, given the big debate going on, are we polygamous by nature? Are we, are we monogamous by nature? Uh, um, at this time, too, there was a wonderful book called The Myth of Monogamy by David Bra- uh, Barash, who is now retired, but he was an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Washington. And he makes an argument, even got on NBC Morning News to talk about it with his wife, that if you look around mammals and birds and humans as a species, now individuals can be, they can make an ethical commitment and sustain it. But as a species, human beings are not sexually monogamous. We're constantly going out. It's very easy. You have to work. Notice the use of the word work. There has to be effort in sustaining sexual commitment to your primary partner. You're always tempted it's very easy to cross over and go oh my god what did i do and it, it, it so it's a cognitive decision to be sexually monogamous one that always needs to be reinforced um, but then it's kind of the interesting question to me are we as a species emotionally monogamous Can you really love two people at the same time? And that gets into really deep philosophical grounds now, particularly remember the polyamore running around and most of all, the undergraduates all think they can love many people, which by the way, is a sidebar, I think is a euphorism saying I want to have sex with lots of people. But that's very crude to say that. So to say I have a lot of imagine if someone says I'm really sexy, I have a lot of sex to give to a lot of people. They'd go, what a jerk. Crude, but isn't it nice to say I have a lot of love to give? It it becomes a nice cultural account, a rationalization for something else that might be more based than people are willing to admit. Okay, that's a little sidebar. So back back to the question on that. I then started looking at emotional monogamy, and I realized we as a species are emotionally monogamous. Now you have we have a paradox then. We're not sexually monogamous but we're emotionally monogamous. Remember my little funny story about academic men being upset about the findings because, because they really want to have sexual variety, but they don't want to abandon their wife who they're deeply in love with. Okay. And therefore, therefore isn't it much better to say we're polygamous by nature. Therefore, what I want is just part of the human nature. I'm not a deviant. But, you know that's a whole other little little issue here which is kind of like chuckle if you will but the real dilemma is how do you balance these two impulses that are really at odds with one another now the society comes in and gives you certain rules and norms and it fits for some but it doesn't fit for all so when the does what about those that doesn't quite fit they're struggling
1: thank you thank you i think basically you make this very interesting, very, you know, innovative distinction between sex and love. And love basically is um, more emotional, more emotion. And there are two topics which are quite interrelated, interconnected, but they are still very different. And, you know, as you show in your book, you emphasize the impulse to form a, you know, a didactic love. I just want to know, practically, how do you make this Distinction? How do you make this, you know, essential difference between sex and love? Because in practice, they are more often interconnected, right?
0: Yeah, Levi Strauss, when he wrote his only little ethnographic travel account, noticed in the Amazon that the typical thing was not to have sex in the evening, but the morning. And he noticed that couples would go into the woods because sex, so every culture in the world is always invisible; it's always private. When they came out, he noticed some couples, the men and women came out on different paths separately and went their own way. Others, though, came out together, and he made an inference that after being satiated, They still wanted to be together. The people who did not have deep feelings after being satiated went their own way until the desire came back again. So the question is, how would you recognize the polygamists? Well, we're all speaking English, so you have to listen to when people complain about not having enough time with their husband. And it's not time to have sex. It's time just to be with them, to associate with them. The favorite wife is the favorite wife because that's the one he spends the most time with. Okay, he, you know, the male f- moves because he w- remember he's driven by the desire for lots of children, so he has sex with lots of women, hopefully making them pregnant. But then afterwards, there's a particular one he wants to hang with, he wants to be with, he wants to share his innermost feelings with. The one that he is most vulnerable with so out of that you begin to make an inference also you do something else you look at body language look at eyes you look at how they look at one another is it cold indifference or is it is it is does their, their eyes light up does the pupils light up when the other person move into the room and is it because oh they just want to have sex and it's lost well, then they should get up there and start grabbing them or something, or is it just with, with a tenderness, the way an eye would light up if they saw their favorite child walk into the room, and it's remarkably similar. So if you key on the on that which is hard to control, that is your your facial muscles and your eyes, you can get and you can't hide those. You can get a pretty good idea. Also, then you ask other people, you know, who does he most have the greatest attachment with? And they don't say, oh, he sleeps with her all the time. But after that, he's bored. No, no, no. They just say that's this is the one they go on trips with. They go on everyone's birthday and anniversary. That's obligatory. But who do they go with when it's not the birthday? Not the anniversary. OK, you know, and, and, and so you, you begin inferring it indirectly, i as you know i did a cross-cultural study of romantic r- love around the world and that was one of the ways i tried to by talking to people you know like my good friend barry Euler, It's a little sidebar up of this book but you know i asked him if he ever saw romantic love among the Aka pygmy and he said no and i said well did you ever know of here hear about people who they got rejected by a boy or girl, and 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 they were just crushed. They were just really emotionally upset. And there was a long pause. We went to graduate school together, so we could be very blunt. And he says, well, I know of two people who were rejected by women. These are 16, 15, 16-year-olds. 16 and they climbed the, the, a tree, put a vine around their neck, and hung themselves. And I said, I said, why, was it because the best sex they ever had and they know they would never have sex again? And he looked at me and said, God, no. (laughs) I says, well, why did they kill themselves? And a long, slow sigh came out, he says, because they loved them. So get this on love. If you're in love, love is more dangerous than sex yet. You can get STDs, which is really bad in sex business. But why would I say, Love is more dangerous because if you're in love, only one person on the planet Earth can meet your needs. You know, if if you have a love crush on a boy or a girl and that boy or girl rejects you, you can substitute, but not quickly. You have to grieve. You can't say, well, Mark really likes you. I don't want Mark. I'm like Frank. (laughs) (laughs) with me so it it, I, it is incredibly emotionally monogamous which why if you really have love you have to grieve if you don't have intensive grieving you haven't loved okay you I might can use the words, yeah, but you have not made an emotional investment which is why a divorce is so painful for people and why a lot of people do not want to marry or form a relationship very quickly again because they're grieving a lost love. Now, can people find a new love? Absolutely. Most people do. But it's not something you turn on a dime. And that's what makes love so unique. Uh, You know, psychologists have noted some of the qualities, intrusive thinking, a reorder of priorities. But I I think it's the dyadic nature. And that's why there's a great pull for Parabon. Even in the so-called polyamore communities, they all have a primary and secondary, meaning the primary is the favorite husband, the favorite spouse, uh, uh, and the other is is a sidekick. They might really like the sidekick, the sidekick's there, uh, but but it, it, it raises a question, are they equally in love with everyone? The words are love. You ever talk to an actor in Hollywood, oh, I love Frank, I love the director, or, oh, I love the sound boys, we had great sound boys. I mean, love is used as a euphorism for everything, but everyone knows it's not love with a big L. It's not love. It's just, we get along well, but that's so boring. It's much better to say we love everyone.
1: Definitely, definitely. It's such a fascinating explanation of, basically, about your method and how you use ethnographic methodology to study love, such a subtle and such a very you know, unimaginable thing and an undescribable thing in our everyday life. So basically, it's fascinating. And I think we should... You know, be back for a little bit to talk about your food site. So, um, as mentioned before, it is an ethnography of a Mormon fundamentalist community, and you term this fun- this community as Andrew Park in your book. So, could you please give us some information of your food site and its residents? So, where is it, and what is this Mormon fundamental fund- fundamentalist community like, basically?
0: Yeah, the fun- the fundamental. I I learned a lot by doing the research because I hadn't very little knowledge of of mormon theology or mormon history so i i I did whatever good ethnographer does i let the people teach me and then obviously you supplement it by doing uh, outside reading but i really let them teach me and and it's very interesting when i first year or so year plus Every time I met people who I'd known before, they would talk about the theology for about an hour. Every single, it would be months upon months. And then they would talk about personal things and whatever. And it finally dawned on me, what they were trying to tell me is that their religion is very important to them. After a couple of years went by, they knew that I knew that. So we didn't have that unless I had a specific question on religion but they were trying to communicate that they were deeply committed to this religion. And the religion obviously starts in the 19th century as part of the church of Latter-day Saints. When Joseph Smith has a vision that God is a polygamist and that he, that, that they need to live God's family on earth in preparation for the next life. So it's, it's very, this world, other world orientated and this was in when utah was a territory which was a giant territory including today would be like if virus states or so Uh, and it was during the civil war that this became known and so the american government did nothing but then it was communicated to the leadership if they didn't change this the army now that the war was over was planning to invade the territory and in a pragma, you know, it all becomes either had a vision or it was a pragmatic response. You take your choice on history here about what the motive was. But whatever happened, the prophet, the leader of the church had a vision that polygamy would take place in the next life, but they shouldn't practice it in this life. And out of that vision, there were several people who disagreed. They thought that was a betrayal of Joseph Smith's. Philosophy and religious worldview. They were very small. There's probably only about twenty-five thousand people who practice Mormon uh, polygamy in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, uh, and and so it's not huge. It's a really small uh, small group, uh, and they broke away and went underground. Underground because it was against the law in all states to to call bigamy that is, married to more than one person at the same time. So they were able to get around this by having spiritual marriages, which means that you married the first wife legally, but all other subsequent wives were wives married in the church, recognizing the community, but by law, they were not really married because they never had a legal marriage. So you couldn't get them on polygamy, polygamy, bigamy, excuse me, uh, and all you could get them on was unlawful cohabitation. That is sleeping with somebody you're not married to, which was a problem in an ideal in America all the way up into the 1960s. Uh, that recently has been reverted, which has allowed polygamous communities not to be hassled. Uh, because if you if you want to talk about unlawful cohabitation, you'd have to arrest almost all the college students at all the universities in America and the UK. Uh, And so the the cultures have changed. Unlawful cohabitation now is no big deal. It's called uh, premarital living together uh, and it's culturally accepted. Given that then the polygamists are no different than the average American uh, uh, urbanite uh, um, or, or whatever. So that's allowed them breathing room. So um, the states where polygamy is most prevalent in Utah and Arizona and Montana, the attorney generals have come out saying they're not going to prosecute them unless that's underage marriage, that is marrying people under 18 and or or sexual abuse. That is, they find out there's sibling abuse or, or abusing children. But barring those two things, which apply also to mainstream culture, they are going to allow allow live and let live philosophy. So the communities for the first time can breathe. They don't have to worry and deny and hide who they are. And now out of this split, though, comes an interesting question. I happened to be in a parking lot when a Dutch sociologist got out of the car. He obviously knew nobody. And he started yelling out, I want to talk to somebody who can explain to me the true Mormon religion. I want someone to tell me the true Mormon religion. And and it it was clever. He didn't know anybody, but he really understood because their position is we might have a small group of believers, but we're the true religion. We're the orthodoxy. Okay uh why the church of latter-day saint which really looks down and despises them they them from the fundamentalist point of view is they lost the vision they are not the true mormons we are the true mormons so it Comes the old religious position, which religion's better. So they have an antagonistic relationship between the two. But the fundamentalists believe they are really the upholders of Joseph Smith's vision formed in the mid 19th century.
1: And so let's get deeper uh, into your book. So, first of all, let's talk about the root of the father in the family. Uh, Basically, in our imagination, Hologamous family is understood as a form of marriage system operating around the father, around the male. In chapter three, you show us that there is actually an interplay between the theological ideal type and, and also the social realities around the rule of the father in Angel Park and in other polygamous communities. So basically, in reality, the images of the father are various rather than you know unified, and people's you know attitudes can be ambivalent. So even so, the glorification of the father is still publicly and broadly accepted. So so how can we understand this phenomenon? Yeah,
0: there, there's a thing called what I call father adoration. And the, to be called a patriarch in the community, why in mainstream society, it's considered a slur. You don't believe in equality. In the fundamentalist community, a patriarch is a positive word. And and it makes sense in a sense that it, the operating assumption is a harmonious family needs the father or husband's present if he's managing the the family well they'll be much more content when he abdicates his responsibility then the family will fall apart if so in many ways he's the hub and all the others are little satellites going around the sun, so to speak. And so there's a great deal of idealization of the father as the important in the family. Now, here comes the mother has tried to uphold to the, his children the importance of the father, but he's always distant. I talked to my, my good friend Jim Bell, who studied the Taida in a tribal group in Kenya, And he was doing some research on this, and he'd ask young men if they loved his father. And they would say, Not really, but I really respect him. And I would say the same thing holds for the polygamists. As one polygamist said to me, I have a father, I don't have a daddy. And when he used that distinction, he was really clear, like in the Chinese, you would say, Well, yao fu, yao buy baba. the the baba the daddy is is a more close more affectionate relationship the other is a more formal detached based on respect uh and 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 i I i thought he nailed it i remember there is a lot of commemoratives about one's father where they have a meeting and they read all the wonderful things but there's nothing about the mother but here's the paradox they don't celebrate Father's Day. Remember, this is American communities. So a lot of the, the culture, it, it, it permeates them. But they do Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, there's people who have make little flower baskets and they're packed in the parking lot as adult children and husbands all will buy these big flower fruit baskets uh, and, and give them away. But there's none of that for the father. Yet the community has... Formal rituals, formal historical narrative events of commemoration. These are commemorative events honoring the father, but not the mother. So you have at the symbolic level, the father is above the mother. But at the interactive emotional felt level, uh, the mother is more important than the father. I remember, if I can share this with your audience, uh, this woman who I knew very, very well. Uh, and very open we had a very open exchange she got I asked her about her father she says oh my father did this 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 and this and I says would you like to have a commemorative oh yes I would be it would be wonderful I said did you really were you close to him no but would you like to have a commemorative?" oh I'd love to have a commemorative about so you see the shift emotionally nothing but the idea of honoring this person because in some ways status of your family was linked to the status of your father in the larger
1: community. Exactly
0: you see. So in many ways the you know it, it, if you if you borrow the analogy would be maybe your status is based on the corporation and the and the, and the fame of the corporation you work in mainstream America. This case it would be where's the father in its importance? in the community, particularly how close he was to becoming a a leader in the community, which got automatic deference and respect. And they borrowed status or lost status based on the father. So they were very conscious of competition between fathers. But you see, this is done much more in a formal way based on the social system that they've constructed.
1: So basically, let's talk about the variety of family organizations models in uh, angel park so despite a unified theologically uh, grounded cosmology on the surface i think families in Andrew Park were organized and managed based on very different moves. In the book, you basically distinguish three predominant management moves among these families. The first is stern authoritarian, the, the second is diffuse or consensus, and the third is indifference. So can you briefly describe the three moves and what makes different families adopt different moves to sustain and develop themselves?
0: Good, good questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to look at this as as a as a as a continuum. You know, these are all little ideal types. What I wanted to do was point out that not everyone was organized under the patriarch authoritarian model. Okay? the the father is central in the two, but one he's open to giving a lot more independence to his wives. He's a lot more into listening and responding. This would be the consensus model. Uh, uh, The authoritarian model is the father commands you obey. Get in line. Follow me. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, In one family where the father was absolute authoritarian, he took his whole family, like 12 people, out to uh, all the children as well to a, a little a nearby diner, and they gave all 12 people menus, and they didn't look at them, and I said, why? He says, because whatever we picked, our father would ignore it. He ordered for all 12 of us, and we knew it, so why look? Now look at the consensus model, the same thing. They would all look at the model, and they would all talk, I'd like this, I'd like that, I'd like that, and that was considered to be okay. So you can see two different philosophies. Now, why wonder versus the other? I think it had to do with the individual person, particularly the male, uh, and what he wanted and his success and being able to pull it off. He might've wanted to be authoritarian, perhaps, but perhaps his wives were just smarter than he was and, and cleverer and they were able to negotiate the others. So there's a dialogue between all the women and him. And also his orientation. And a lot of the men, though, they've all been socialized to be leaders, take the command, uh, give orders. A lot of them find it just a burden, just a burden. And they just withdraw. So, you know, it, it's kind of like you need to get married because that's what people do. Uh, but you, in a way, you don't really want it. So you would just withdraw. And in that case, it's a, it's every woman for themselves, and that becomes incredibly dysfunctional, as you might imagine. You can't have a plural marriage if the if your hub has decided to go on retreat.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, is, there are many tensions within this community. Basically, it's far from the, you know, the ideal condition they described. Uh, you know, based on the unified theological, um, you know, ideal. Basically, quite complex. So uh, I think I want to talk about my favorite chapter about naming because uh, you know naming is very important practice in social life, especially in the dynamics of a family. So in the book, you show us that naming practices can reveal the complex politics within the uh, polygamous families. So naming is a salient activity especially in Andrew Park. You argue that the female residents in Andrew Park maintain continued bonds or strengthen symbolic bonds with their husbands or natal, fam- or natal family through naming practices. And how do they do it?
0: Yeah, you know, at the time I was interested in evolutionary theory and there was a, I went to a conference and this person had just looked at monogamous marriages and he was curious about why people got the name and who influenced was it more the mother naming was it more the father he was trying to look at and what was there a gender preference girl mother's name girls father's named boys so that was an intriguing question and and i, I met the guy and and i showed him my data set and he was looking at it and he says, My goodness, I have two or three on my data set, and you have like 12, 14, 16 for each family, you know, because these they had so many offspring. And 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 it, it was out of that, I was just just a curious, it was just curiosity how it would go. I was curious to who named who? And 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 I noticed the male was most active in naming following a patriarchal uh, tendency, if you will, or position the first wife and her children and the subsequent wives, he was less active. But then I noticed that if you started looking at the tail end of a woman's reproductive career, where they seemed to be naming the kid, were they naming their family, which was a bias towards their natal family, mom, their mom and dad, or were they naming their husband's natal family? And, 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 and that surprised me, because it looked like through the notions of symbolization, which is introduced in Father Adoration, we see it returning very tacitly, and only really known within the family, that man's family, who is being named to who and what side. And it's communicated Not through any formal ritual or announcement, it's just kind of a subtle thing maybe hinted at by the woman to the man and why she did that. And so through the naming, we really see the evidence, again, of of an emotional commitment. So you're trying to recognize the other man's family and give him face, so to speak, um, and and or or ignoring him because ideally, if you're just looking at an evolutionary thing, women given the opportunity should name their natal family and he should name everyone her <laughs> name But that was also interesting too. In the favorite wife, the man would name children after people on the favorite wife's natal family side. Again, giving symbolic evidence, of his special endearment to that woman. So you see that the the web of connectiveness through naming is there if you want to probe it and interpret it. I'm sure to be open to all of this, there could be another way of interpreting this data. But given how I decided the data does support my interpretation, though I'd be the last one in the world to say that's the finite interpretation, I'm sure that data could be looked at a different way as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think naming is such a very significant social practice because it's, like you mentioned, is both pretty ritual but also very emotional. Just think about the moment or a picture that a mom calling her children's name is very. It's a very emotional moment, and it it can build, uh, it can suddenly build the emotional connection when calling others' name. You know, so it's super interesting, and I really think it is a topic deserving further attention and deserving maybe um, analysis from another perspective. Super interesting. Uh, let's talk about the situations, especially the crisis of Andrew Park, Andrew Park is facing right now. So in terms of cultural transformation, I think it seems to me, at least, Andrew Park suffers no remarkable difficulties because they have a very unified theological uh, ideals and ideology, basically. But demographic realities seemingly present a greater crisis. So men in the community often have a far greater need for mates than there are potential wives available, creating anxiety and a crisis of community survival. So the first question is the crisis within this community, particularly places, financial, emotional and existential pressures on polygamous males. So when the polygamous goal fails, what kind of a crisis does males in Angel Park suffer? And how do they seek hope in such a situation? I just want to know, how do they, uh, in a word, how do they face this kind of individual crisis?
0: Yeah, good good question. The, every polygamous society is faced with a demographic reality that there's not enough women to meet all the men in the community. If you assume that there's a 50-50 ratio on demography, men are slightly born more, uh, but they die earlier. So it, it overall it comes out 50,50. So you have a problem. If someone has three wives, there has to be uh, three men in the community that don't have eligible wives. So what do you do? There we go to family status. The higher status of your family. here comes the thing in polygamy. Can you hold on to the, your daughters? Okay? What's critical is holding on to the daughter. The son can go, and you can still sustain the community. And therefore, it's an, if you can hold on to your daughters, that is, have them marry within the, the religion, you and then you push out the boys, the excessive boys, by just telling them, go out into the wider community and find a wife, uh, which seems normal and reasonable. But if they do that, overwhelmingly, women will not join that community who are not raised in that community. So therefore, they will live monogamous. They'll have to go that route. The women will refuse to join them. Or, um, and, 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 and so by not being finding a wife within the community or being um, offered a wife within the community, their options are very restricted. And a lot of the men, when that happens, wind up leaving the church or that religion they were raised in. They might join the Church of Latter-day Saint or another church, uh, Catholic Methodist, or just some other religious group. In some sense, they have a great deal of anger uh, towards the community they were raised in because they felt betrayed uh and and uh, so that that would be it now men are acutely aware of the problem of who is the correct wife how do you find a wife and so there's a lot of hustling and they're really aware at the church a lot of times the leader would 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 tell people you boys stop trying to date women you know because you know you're you're young you don't have resources You're not experienced. Uh, uh, You know, it's best to leave these things to your elders. So obviously there was a lot more meeting. Uh, A lot of times at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, when their parents are all in bed, people would sneak out and meet. So you have youth meeting, but they're meeting secretly. Uh, and and they're not necessarily being sexually involved. In fact, right? very few really are prior to marriage. But they're at least meeting to talk and chat. Okay, so these are just, if you will, harmless from outsiders' point of view, a harmless rendezvous. But from within the community, this is not very good because you shouldn't be doing this meeting. But however, they're really playing uh, an awareness of the reality that there's not that many women to go around. And what does that mean in terms of what does life worth living for? What makes life worth living? And and it really does ro- revolve around the marriage institution and finding a, wa- a wife on that.
1: Yeah, it's just you know very amazing details and basically i also want to know how did the polygamous uh, community react to the crisis in as a as a total so are these are their uh, reactions effective do you think there
0: you know the the a lot of the leaders are highly educated and so they're really aware of genetic, genetic drift. A lot of times people wonder maybe if we could get another big, huge family in because they're really aware of the inbreeding, not natal family inbreeding. But if, you know, if that family, if the community has been together for almost 100 years and the same amount of families are there and you have six, 10 families, you're all going to, after a while, you're related genetically to everyone and they're acutely aware that that you could have a maladaption could rise up within a small gene pool if you will so some are aware of of of, of that they're also aware of the need to track more women uh, and so the question is how do you do that how do you bring it how do you Uh they're always telling women to you know, if you know somebody out in the world, talk to them about how they could become in and join the family and become, and 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 participate in. Because remember, they're not ashamed of the lifestyle, and so and they think they think it's it's a good one. So they think if other people could be introduced to it, that that they would uh, they would participate, uh, and and so these are like the struggles but the real issue is can you hold on to daughters now it it i suspect which kept them able to hold on to daughters so long was the fact that the larger society condemned them and therefore it became less of a commitment to a family system and more a commitment to identity to a defending a community. As one woman says, I really believe in this and the religion, but polygamy doesn't work for me. I just want to marry to one, one man. Okay. So notice this thing. I'm committed to the idea, but I can't live it. And I don't want my husband, who I'm deeply involved with, um, to live it. Okay. But when, now that they're no longer under siege, to leave is not to undermine the community, not to jeopardize the community. Okay? And with that, I think you're going to see a lot more dissipation. Uh, a friend who I visited told me, who's really acute, I, I didn't do any research on this, but so I'll just take his word for it, but he's pretty acute and looking. He said it was his impression that in the community there was very little placement marriage going on but a lot of young people as they would in mainstream society forming an age mate. That being said, there's still people marrying into polygamous community, but there's also now much greater license for youth to find youth to form a couple within it. So in that sense, you're holding on to your children because they're not leaving the community, but they're no longer going to actively practice polygamy although they'll give voice to it, I'm open. Again, going back to uh, mainstream um, UK, Europeans, and Americans, I'm open to polyandry. I'm just not going to practice it.
1: Understood. So, yeah, it's a real tricky situation, and I'm looking forward to see how this community could react to the current crisis. It's just like human society, because human society in total, uh, we are basically facing very... You know, serious social problems about marriage and love. So yeah. Uh, finally, I think let's go back to the original question. You know, in earlier uh, in earlier discussion. So, what do you think? What does this book contribute to our understanding of polygamous family and basically human nature? What do you think is the major contribution?
0: Well, of that's it? good. I I never really, don't people Mormon studies is a small little group. It's a real clique, if you will very closed, and and they kind of really write just kind of for themselves in a way. I, I'm sure the book has some relevance to that group, but that was not written to that group at all. I was really writing a much larger um, um, academic and non-academic world that would be curious about the nature of love and what it is to be human. So you really ask the right question right off, and, and that's where it is. And the question to me was, if, a, if people were raised, these are not experimental communes where people were raised monogamously and then say, let's go out in the desert and form a commune and live polygamously. You would have to say they're bringing their so- earlier socialization with them and they just couldn't pull it off. Uh, but these are people raised in a poly, the only world they ever knew, the only family system they ever knew was a polygamous family. The church that's early socialization from the schools to the that is all promoting the 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 value and the beauty and the aesthetic pleasure of plural love and and the ethical commitment that we should have. People would often say at the church meetings that were all for youth that saying, you people think you're gonna get one person to yourself, you're not. You know, jealousy's there, but get over it. You need to master your jealousy. Okay. Uh, so they they confronted a reality, and they spoke it so the question then is is how successful how successful would a community where the social organization is bent on promoting plurality, where the cosmology provides a legitimacy to uh, to plural, plural, plural plurality excuse me people uh how successful was that and at the end, when I remember. When I asked the people, do you anybody know that in a family system that worked and people said no? Uh, and what they meant by no wasn't that there wasn't satisfactory families, but did anyone really live to this high ideal where the co-wives all love one another, the children from different sibs and half sibs all love one another, and they all they all lived in one giant utopian love element. That they didn't know anyone but realistically who who can to be fairness that uh, um but nonetheless they they soldiered on so to speak to try to create that now to me this became now another evidence of the question of emotional monogamy could you love more than one person at the same time and i think that would be the significant step to to an antro and psychological theory Uh, That it's that it's that at this small little marginal community that's not representative in terms of how everyone in America is living, but I think it's representative at the level of human experience. That given how people are socialized, why are they having so much difficulty living up to something that they've been socialized as babies up? And I think that then speaks to an underlying element of the human condition, that we as a species have been more, we have a greater propensity to form a love bond with one person. Now, the interesting question is, we're always tempted by sexual variety. So while you have this love bond, you also have this other inclination to be pulled the other way. So how do you justify it? How do you explain it? How do you rationalize it? Uh, what does the culture tell you how you should do it Uh, what are the exceptions to that rule but again it's always the tension between if you will this sex differences and sexuality if you will and that gets to a really good point because i do buy the evolutionary argument i think until it's proven otherwise overwhelmingly the empirical evidence is looking at a difference in in, an erotic appetite of males around the world compared to females around the world but in the domain of love there is no sex difference men cannot love more than one person at a time nor can women when both men and women in love there's a reorganization of priority and exclusive thinking a desire to merge and unify with one person there is very little of any sex difference in the domain of love. It's monstrously big in the domain of sexuality.
1: Thank you, thank you. So it's a very basically universal issue, but based on a very concrete, specific case study. It's fantastic. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's a case study trying to make a larger question. If you wanna know where to go here, I think I, I think it would be really good to be able to live in a polyamoric community. Exactly. I think the only way you would get in would be become somebody's polyamore or the second or whatever but then you'd have to have so much skepticism while you participated in that because today on the polyamor, all we have is really advocates or true believers we don't really have a skeptical discussion of people how do they manage the emotionality how do how you know and 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 and, and what is the background when a woman has two lovers what is the social status of the two lovers are they both alpha males i think not uh so oh, what sure. does the beta male do okay or you know do you attract an alpha and a beta or are they both beta and they're at, they're at the beck and call of the woman if you want to look at it that way we don't have any of that analysis it's just truth claims but if my research is, has any representative the things that I discovered in the polygamous community, in the small marginal, you should see evidence. The words will be different, the justification will be different, the cosmology is different, the, the cultural account will be different but the behavior should be remarkably
1: similar. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this you know, suggestion and for giving us this research gap. I think maybe some of our audiences will be very interested in doing this project, basically, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. So as we are approaching the end of the podcast, the final question is, what are you working on now and what is your plan for your future projects?
0: Oh, good question. I have so many. Um, facing right now, I want to finish up Inner Mongolia, and look at Han-Mongolian intermarriage. Mongols have the the high, high reputation of being the most accepting of the Chinese state in their borders. They're often called the model minority compared to Tibet and Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And I and what's not and and, and though Mongolian intellectuals educated and teaching at Cambridge and whatever. Have argued that the, that Mongols are really repressed, and they the law, and they talk about the loss of the nation, something taking place in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. So there's a lamentation of a lost cause, if you will. But I I I was very aware, and I remember I've have been my best friends in there are all all urban Mongols. I was always aware of, of them wearing two faces. One was pride and ethnicity. The other was pride, but not voice, but acceptance of a Chinese identity. So they really had two identities. Ethnicity was number one. Secondary was Jungur, and I was a Chinese person. And the question is, and I missed it, and the data was all there, is that in Inner Mongolia, the intermarriage rate among Han and Mongolians is over eighty percent, eighty percent. So you ha- it's pretty hard to be an offspring when your parents are one ethnicity and then the other parent is another ethnicity, to claim ethnic solidarity with one and reject the other. Uh, and 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 so I, I want to write a thing about intermarriage on that to a book on intermarriage around the world.
1: All right, thank you very much. I think yeah, the intermarriage project sounds very interesting as always and yeah I looking forward I'm looking forward to having another conversation when you basically finally publish your new monograph and so Professor Jankoviak, thank you for coming to our podcast. Yes and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology channel of New Books Network, and we will see you next time.